0: I don't know if I should, I don't usually talk about this. Um, I could have been a major league baseball player. (laughs) Seriously, I'm telling you, when I was nine years old, I was the best player in our league. I was the man. And, and I, I was so good at nine years old that they bumped me up to play with the 12-year-olds. And so I thought, you know, I could, they throw a pitch, I'm hitting it out of the park, that it, was just, it was just glorious, you know? I had like a whole fan club and there was like t-shirts and all that stuff. And, and then they brought me up to play with the 12-year-olds. And here's what I found out. 12-year-olds can throw curveballs. <laughs> And I could never learn to hit the curveball. I could never learn to hit the curveball. And so after a little while, I said, you know, I'm gonna kind of set baseball aside and take up basketball. And, and then I realized I'm not very fast, I can't really jump and I don't shoot well. And so I became a pastor. It's like my third option, but here I am. Um, here's the thing, if you can't hit a curveball in Little League, it is no big deal. But if you cannot hit a curveball in life, you are in big trouble. Because in life, there will always be curveballs. That's your amen. 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 In life, there's always curveballs. So you and I had better get used to this idea that we're going to get surprised, we're going to get shocked, there's going to be difficulties, and we better learn to adjust to life's little surprises. We had better learn to adjust to life's big surprises. Um, and by the way, when I talk about curveballs in life, not all curveballs are bad. Um, I, I have a, a pastor friend that I know, and you know he's just working away, him and his wife and their ministry, and um, they inherited $2 billion. That's a curveball. $2 billion. And, and now... Their entire ministry, 40 hours a week, what they do for a living is they give money to Christian causes. That's what they do. They created a foundation. They just, but that's a curveball I could live with. But sometimes there are curveballs like that. And sometimes there are curveballs that are really, really tough. Um, I, was, I was just reading an article this week by Johnny Erickson Tata. Some of you know who Johnny is. And, uh, you know, at 17, she was an accomplished athlete. She dives into the, to the water, misjudges the depth, hits her head on the bottom, breaks her neck. And for the last 55 years, she's been in a wheelchair as a quadriplegic. And from that position, she has been one of the most impactful Christians I have ever known. She, she writes poetry, she writes books, she paints using a paintbrush in her mouth and paints beautiful pictures. She sings, she writes songs. She leads probably the, the largest um, ministry to the disabled in the entire world. And she's been in that chair for 55 years and her pain gets worse, not better. And she once told me, Every morning when I wake up, the first thought I have is, oh, man, I'm still paralyzed. 55 years. That's a curveball. And it's easy to accept the curveballs when they are good. But when the curveballs bring challenges, we tend to get mad at God We tend to question God. We tend to even question his existence. Does he love me? Is he good? Is he powerful? And a whole lot of people just turn their backs on God and say, listen, if you're going to do me like that, I'm not going to worship you. I am not going to follow you. I am not going to trust you. And a lot of people walk away from God because the circumstances of life are hard to swallow. And the truth of the matter is sometimes they are. But we might as well get used to the fact that, like it or not, life is full of curveballs. I know, uh, for example, multiple families who had a couple of kids, got them raised to the age where they're pretty much self sufficient, and then, surprise, another baby came along. I come from a family like that. That happened to my parents. My parents, they had the perfect life, they had a little suburban place, they had the white picket fence, they had a daughter, they had a son, everything was fine, the daughter got to be 12, the son got to be 10, and then, surprise, my brother came along, and he was a shock, and I always remind him that he was an accident. (laughs) But I was planned because they wanted him to have a playmate. So when I remind him that he was an accident, he reminds me that I only exist for his entertainment. <laughs> and at that point, I would beat him up and say, I hope that was entertaining, and I would go off. But that's what happened in our family. And, but I'll tell you this, as the youngest of those four siblings... I can tell you that I am very grateful that my parents didn't panic and take some kind of drastic measures when that curveball came. Last week, we saw a biblical picture of a surprise pregnancy in the lives of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Now, I don't know if you've heard about this, but that turns out to not be the only surprise pregnancy in the Christmas story. There's an Yes, yes, it's true. There's another surprise pregnancy. When Elizabeth is six months along in her pregnancy, Gabriel, the archangel, is once again dispatched from heaven, and he is sent to earth to make another surprise pregnancy announcement. And we're going to pick this up where we left off last week, which is in the book of Luke. So take your Bibles and turn to the New Testament book of Luke and go to chapter 1 where we pick up these Christmas stories. And in Luke chapter 1, right where we left off, we're going to pick it up here in verse 26. We've already heard the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth. And now there's another surprise pregnancy. Verse 26, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, "'How can this be, since I am a virgin?' The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel Departed from her. Have you ever noticed that God seems to choose to work through people who are humble and lowly? He, 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 it seems such a rare occurrence when God goes and finds the strongest one, the most powerful one, the richest one, the most famous one, the strongest one, and says, you're going to be the one I do amazing things through. He seems to have this habit of finding the lowly, of finding the humble, and of showing himself strong through them. Have you ever seen that commercial that's running uh, where... Uh, the kids are choosing up teams for basketball, and Charles Barkley is one of the players, and the team picks Barkley first, right? Who do you suppose won that game? I'm guessing it was Barkley's team. And who do you suppose, if his team wins 50 to nothing, who do you suppose gets all the praise and glory? Charles Barkley, right? And, and so God seems to have this idea where he says, I can do amazing things through the lowliest of people. I can do amazing things through the most humble of people. And so he, he, he takes this guy, Joseph, who, who is sitting in a dungeon in Egypt, who is a slave, who has become a prisoner, and he raises him up to be the leader of all Egypt and to save that whole region from the famine. He, he, he takes Gideon, the, the, the lowest person in the lowest family in the lowest tribe in Israel. And he says, I'm going to make you a general of an army because the great Midianite army is going to attack and you have to defend Israel. And he says, how can I possibly do that? And, and God says, nothing's impossible with me, and so he raises up this army, and when the army is big enough to go out and fight, God says, oh, uh, wait a second, um, I want you to send almost all those guys home, and I just want you to take 300 guys and fight the great Midianite army. And God routes the Midianites through Gideon and his 300 men, and who do you suppose gets the glory for that? Gideon? The soldiers? God gets the glory. He chooses fishermen. He chooses lepers. He chooses prostitutes. He chooses tax collectors. And then he transforms their lives, lifts them up, and uses them for his own glory. That's what he does. It's a repeated theme all throughout the Bible. God loves to work through humble and lowly people and Mary is no exception. God throws Mary this huge curveball, right? Just when she thought she had her life all figured out, just when her dreams are coming true, she is out at David's bridal shopping for a wedding dress. She is getting invitations printed She is uh, setting up a weekend away with her girls before the wedding. She's got this thing all planned out, and then God comes along and goes, Hey, Mary, um, put down the Modern Brides magazine for a second. I want to talk to you. I have something in store for you. I have a surprise. And verse 26 tells us that Gabriel, the archangel of God, had to go to Nazareth to find Mary. Even her hometown is unimpressive and humble. God didn't pick a girl from a prominent religious family in Jerusalem. Instead, Gabriel sent to this little hamlet called Nazareth, which is in the hill country of Galilee and far from the center of religious life. These people in Nazareth our, would be our modern equivalent of what we would call hillbillies. These, these are the people who live in the hills. They're, they're less educated. They're less refined. Um, they're, they're, there's no big city there. There's nothing impressive there. And he sends Gabriel there to find Mary. Nazareth is something like um, Barstow. Barstow. Or, or, or baker, it, it's, it's where you stop to go to the bathroom and buy beef jerky on your way somewhere better, that's <laughs> what it is, and he goes there, and, and he finds Mary, now remember what Nathaniel said when Philip told him that Jesus was from Nazareth, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth, that was the reputation of this town, Well, Mary is from Nazareth. She's a humble teenage girl from a humble town. She's missed nobody from nowhere. And Luke, who, by the way, is writing the book of Luke, is a medical doctor. I don't know if you all know that. Luke is a medical doctor, and the point he wants to make sure to get across as he's telling this story, he wants to make a biological point, a physiological point. He wants to tell us she was a virgin, And Luke mentions her virginity twice in verse 27. Now, why does that even matter? Well, first of all, it matters because of the miraculous nature of the pregnancy. Now, I've been in ministry a long time, and when you're in ministry a long time, you get to witness uh, a lot of unexpected pregnancies. But in all those years, I have never had a couple say to me, I have no idea how this happened. Like I I've never had anybody go, I'm telling you, we've never touched each other. I don't know. All of a sudden, poof, I'm pregnant. I've never heard that one. And yet that was her story to tell. And, and it matters that she was a virgin because as a virgin, um, first of all, this birth is even more amazing than Elizabeth's pregnancy. Elizabeth is in her 80s, has been barren all of her life, and now she conceives and she's gonna give birth to John the Baptist. And, the, and everybody is in shock about this. How can this be? Everybody's wondering what God is doing. And remember, Zacharias can't say anything. So as the pregnancy is moving on, he knows the story and pretty much nobody else does. And she's just pondering all of this in her heart. And that's an amazing pregnancy. But this makes that look like no big deal. This is a virgin who is pregnant. And so a miraculous conception matters, not just because it was a miracle, but because it was a necessary miracle. So so let's dive into the doctrine a little bit here and make sure we understand why it was necessary that Jesus be born of a virgin. The only way to save mankind was for someone who was both God and man to pay the price for our sin. Why? Well, Anselm, the great theologian of 2,000 years ago, wrote this. Only God could pay the price for our sin. And only man ought to pay the price for our sin. So, so if our sin is gonna get paid for, it has to be paid for by God who is a man. So Jesus has to be fully human and fully God. And because in the Hebrew culture, we, we if you go back to Genesis, you find the original sin takes place in the garden and then we're told that there's going to be a curse on all of mankind and that every generation is going to inherit a sin nature and we inherit that nature through our father. It's passed down from father to child, from father to child, from father to child throughout all of the generations. And so he cannot have a human father and inherit guilt, inherit sin, inherit the curse. He has to have a human mother and he has to have God as his father. He had to be born of a woman so he could be human, but he couldn't be the son of man. He couldn't be the son of a man because the sin nature and the guilty verdict of all mankind is passed down through the father. So the Messiah had to have a divine father and a human mother. And for reasons we will never fully understand, God chooses Mary of of Nazareth to be that human mother. She had both the most amazing honor and also the greatest responsibility by being chosen by God to become the mother of Jesus. So Gabriel is sent to Mary a virgin teen girl in Nazareth who is engaged or or the word in your Bible might be betrothed. It's not exactly engaged. In our culture, you get engaged and if everything keeps going well as you're planning the wedding, you eventually get married and once you get married, that's permanent but in, in Hebrew culture of that time, you would get betrothed, and to be betrothed involved a ceremony, and there was a commitment, and it was for life, but while the betrothal was happening, you still lived separately, As the new husband put together the household and prepared everything so that he would be ready to be the head of his household when they got married. And so you'd have this betrothal. It was a complete commitment in order to end the betrothal. This is not just you have an argument and she throws a ring at him and walks out. That's not what happens. In order to end the betrothal, you had to go through the legal system and get a divorce. So they're sort of married, but they're not married. She's still living with her father, and he's still living with his family. And so they're betrothed. And who is she betrothed to? This common laborer by the name of Joseph. And Gabriel delivers this curveball from God. Look at verse 28 again. Let's find it there Luke chapter 1, verse 28. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering. What kind of salutation this was. She was perplexed. You think? I love how the angel addresses Mary. He says, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. What a surprising greeting. But it was true in every sense. The prophet had said, his name shall be called, as we just sang, Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means what? God with us. us. And so she is literally going to have God with her. She's literally going to have God inside of her body. God, Jesus, God the Son, is going to be raised in her home, He's going to be knit together in her womb. He's going to eat his Cheerios at her kitchen table. That's what she's being handed here. And the message to Mary turns out to be a very important one. We hear this story today and we think, oh, how sweet. He chose this young virgin to be the mother of the Messiah. But do you ever think about this from her perspective? You know what they did to unwed girls who became pregnant? They stoned them to death. And by the way, in in that part of the world, that still happens quite a bit today. They they would stone you to death. And um, nobody's going to believe her story. The best she could hope for is to sneak out under cover of darkness before anybody finds out, find some other town, make up some sad story about what happened and how her husband died and she's on her own now and all this kind of stuff, and hope to be able to live and raise this child by herself. That's the best that she could hope for. Nobody's going to believe her story. Would you believe her story? And Joseph obviously knew that he wasn't the father. I can't even fathom what that conversation would have been like if the angel hadn't stepped in and talked to Joseph about this. Like, can you imagine being married and you have to sit down and go, okay, this is going to sound strange, but there's no chance he's going to buy your story. And what would he think? What's he going to do? The best she could hope for would be to disappear in the middle of the night. This must have seemed in that sense like horrible news to her. At the same time, it's the most amazing news. There's an angel in her living room telling her that she is going to be the mother of the Son of God. That is amazing news. And so the scripture says, and she was perplexed by this. That is called understatement for those of you who are wanting to become great writers. She is perplexed by this. This news is going to be life-changing for her. It's going to change absolutely everything for her. This would undoubtedly be a huge trial for her. But Mary's life's another good example of a lesson that we see illustrated again and again and again in Scripture. Not only does God choose to work through the humble and lowly, but another point that we could take from this is that God doesn't send people into difficult trials. He takes us into difficult trials. He doesn't send us into pain and suffering. He brings us in to pain and suffering. It seems like every Sunday, I, this, this pops into my head as I'm preaching that in Psalm 23, it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me, Emmanuel, God with us. And so as she goes into this trial, one of the things that we see in her life is that God doesn't just go, hey, I have an assignment for you. Go carry it out. He actually takes her into this situation. Um, There's a song we sing here a lot, um, and, and the line is, there's another in the fire, right? You you know the story? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they stand for God and refuse to compromise and all that. They get thrown into the fire. And when they get into the fire, who do they meet in the flames? But one like the Son of God. And now there's four in the fire, and they are delivered from this, right? God doesn't send us into fire. He does take us through the fire. And there's all the difference in the world. So, The first thing Gabriel told Mary is that she's favored and that God is with her. Mary, this is going to sound terrifying. This is going to be confusing. You're not going to know what to do with this. So let me just tell you up front, you're favored by God. You're loved by God. You're chosen by God. You're special to God. God has His eye on you. God has you in His hand. You're favored by God and God is with you. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. When the curveballs come, it's easy to think that God has abandoned us. Every one of us probably has some experience in our lives where we have cried out to God in prayer. And as far as we know, nothing happened. Lord, please, you've got to fix this. And it doesn't get fixed. Lord, please, you've got to keep me from this. And he doesn't keep you from it. Lord, you've got to deliver my loved one. And he doesn't deliver them. And we look at that and we go, wow, God has abandoned me. God has walked away. He tells me to pray. I pray and my prayers bounce off the ceiling and he doesn't respond to me. How many times have we laid in a hospital bed or worse than laying in a hospital bed, sat in the chair next to the hospital bed of a loved one and said, oh God, you've got to come through only to see that nothing changes. Guys, this this heresy that is so common especially in American Christianity today that says God will never let you suffer, he will never let you struggle. He always wants you to be rich, he always wants you to be happy, he always wants you to be healthy. There's not a single verse in scripture that can make you believe that. We struggle Life is full of struggles, and when there are struggles in life, it does not mean that God has abandoned us, and that's why Gabriel reminds her right from the beginning, this is going to freak you out, Mary. You're not going to know what to do about this, Mary. You're going to be lost in this, and you're going to feel just caught up as if this is happening to you, but I just want you to know something. God has not lost sight of you. In fact, you're favored by God. God is with you. He doesn't keep us out of the storms of life, but he does carry us through them. And sometimes, as in the case with Mary, the most difficult trials are the pathway to God's greatest blessings. But we have no way of seeing that from where we are. Maybe like Mary, you might just need a reminder this Christmas season that you're chosen and favored by God. That that despite your circumstances and, and your lack of understanding of why there's no change, no matter how it seems, that He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Christmas is our annual reminder that He is Emmanuel, God with us. Well, the angel had more to say. Let's pick it up in verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid. There's what the angels say again, right? Do not be afraid. Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. And Mary responded by saying, oh, okay, now I get it. (laughs) Now that makes perfect sense to me. Oh, wait, wait, what? What? The more you explain, Gabriel, the less I understand. You are talking about something impossible. You are talking about something that cannot happen. Like, like I'm just a teenage girl, I shouldn't have to give physiology lessons to archangels. But maybe you angels don't understand how this works. Here, virgins don't get pregnant. And, and more, more importantly, God is transcendent. He's far beyond us. God's not a man. God cannot be in the womb of a woman. What does it say in the Old Testament? What kind of temple will you build for me, God says, That what could possibly contain me? What could possibly house me? And she says, you're telling me that God is going to be in my womb growing over the course of 40 weeks and then I'm gonna give birth to a baby? And when I hold this child in my arms and look in his eyes, I'm gonna be looking into the eyes of God. This makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. And friends... May this Christmas be a reminder to us that while well, we never fully understand what God is doing or why he's doing it, the point is that he's doing it and we can trust him with everything. Look at verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, the bond of the Lord may be done to me according to your word and the angel Departed from her. Nothing is impossible with God. And Christmas is our annual announcement of that. It's at Christmas that God gets his loudspeaker and says, by the way, don't forget, nothing is impossible with God. By the way, I know you can't see a solution to your problem. By the way, I know that you think that everything is the way you understand it. But guess what? Nothing is impossible with God. And Christmas just shouts that truth over a loudspeaker for us. All of us, all of us were helplessly dead in our trespasses and sins, according to the scripture, completely without hope. All of us, completely helpless, unable to save ourselves. And the scripture says, the wages of sin is death. No excuses, no exceptions. The wages of sin is death, and we're all sinners, and we can't stop it. We can't fix it. We can't change it. And God says, guess what? Nothing is impossible with God. It's the heart of the gospel. And into that impossible situation, God comes along, places his son in the womb of Mary so that he can pay the price for our sin, so that he can set us free and give us new life. And what seemed impossible didn't just become possible, it became real. And so there are three important lessons from my message today. Number one, God works through the lowly and humble. Number two, God is with us even in the fiercest of storms. And number three, there is nothing that is impossible with God. Those are my three main points this morning. <clears throat> but you've been good, so I'm going to give you some extra. <laughs> I'm going to give you one more thought. I'm not going to even charge you for this one. This is free, okay? Zacharias, we saw last week, received a shocking message about an unplanned pregnancy, and his initial response left to mute for nine months. Mary receives a shocking message about an unplanned pregnancy that rocked her world and put her in great danger and they both responded the same way. We're in Luke chapter 1, go down to verse 67 and let's see Zacharias' response because guess what? After the child came on the eighth day after the child was born, Zacharias could once again speak and here's what it says. Verse 67 of Luke chapter 1 and his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the God of Israel for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, has raised up a Horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, and he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High." For you will go on before the Lord and prepare his ways and give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sun rise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Zachariah's response, the moment he can talk is to give Praise and glory and honor to God. I just think if I had been Zacharias and I had had the experience that he had, and I had waited nine months and I couldn't say a word, and everybody thought I lost my mind, and now I can speak, the first thing I would say is, okay, let me tell you what happened to me. (laughs) Because this is about me, right? But Zacharias goes, oh, no, no, it's not about me, it's about him. It's about a God who keeps his promises. It's about a God who keeps his covenant. It's about a God who loves us so much that he will not let us go. It's about a God who pours out mercy upon us and says, I will rescue you from that which you cannot rescue yourself from. It's about him. Blessing and and honor and glory and praise be unto our God. That's his response. What's Mary's response? Go back a few verses. Mary in chapter uh, 1, verse 46 of Luke. And Mary said, "'My soul exalts the Lord.'" And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones has exalted those who were humble he's filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed he's given help to Israel his servant in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and his descendants forever and Mary stayed with her about 3 months and then returned to her home mary after processing this and coming to grips with what has happened to her her only response is how great is God. How merciful is God? If I was Mary, what I would have to say is, okay, before you start throwing rocks, let me explain. But she doesn't. This isn't about her. This is about God's grace toward her and toward all of us through her. This is about God's mercy and his covenant keeping and his love. It's the same response that Zacharias has. When you stop and see that God finds us in our helplessness and he reaches down and does the impossible in order to set us free and make us new and give us life, there is no other proper response than to lift your hands, to lift your heart, to lift your voice and to give praise to God for he he is worthy of our praise. There's no other choice. That's the proper response. The curveballs are coming. They always do. But this Christmas, I pray that you and I will stay focused not on our circumstances, but on the God who transcends our circumstances. On the God who keeps his promises. On the God for whom nothing is impossible. On the God who is always with us. May this Christmas season be a reminder that you can always trust God. And may it be an opportunity for us to praise him and to declare his glory. Even when we don't understand what he's doing. For he is our wonderful counselor, our mighty God our everlasting father, our prince of peace. May his peace reign in our hearts this Christmas season and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just want to say thank you that you haven't forgotten us. We want to say thank you that though our circumstances sometimes seem daunting, that you transcend our circumstances. We want to say thank you that you are faithful even when we are faithless. We want to say thank you that you have all power and because of you, nothing is impossible. And we just ask you, God, that you would help us to give you the focus, to give you the praise, to give you the honor, to give you our lives, that we would not be overwhelmed by the storms, but instead that we would see you despite the storms and that you would take us through the valley of the shadow of death and that we will not fear evil because you are with us. And we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. amen.